What did you have for breakfast today? Today for breakfast I had a cup of black tea and a slice of toast and butter. Beautiful. Wholemeal toast. And where's the butter from? I don't know. I ate <laughs> it in a cafe. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> Welcome to the Uncommon Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Michaelides. In our podcast, we interview unique individuals and investigate interesting topics, helping you to build the uncommon sense crucial to increasing performance. Our guests have included a wide array of people, including venture capitalists, strength coaches, human rights advocates, chefs, bodybuilders, restaurateurs, and rappers, just to name a few. And you'll notice that Our conversational style and line of questioning is very much inspired by the likes of Charlie Rose, Joe Rogan, Tim Ferriss, and Charlie Munger, who, as Warren Buffett's business partner, really emphasized the importance of building worldly wisdom to, I think, improve your growth as an individual. Um, So that is is very important to us, and you notice that through our, our style and our questioning. If you'd like to learn more, please head to neural.com slash podcast. You'll see there we also have an index of all of our past episodes and, and the show notes included there. If you like this episode, make sure you leave us a review. We always appreciate your thoughts and and um, and feedback on that. 90% of our guests subscribe for priority access and our show notes. So perhaps you should consider that as well. Again, you can find the sign-up page at Neural dot com slash podcast that is n-e-u-r-a-l-l-e dot com slash podcast don't forget to like us on facebook or twitter it's just at neural uh, on either platform in this episode we recorded with rita ehrlich now rita is a food writer former co-editor of the age good food guide and author of multiple books including melbourne by menu scott pickett a cook story and the makers story of food family and foreigners Rita holds a brilliant reputation over 30 years in the field of journalism, particularly focusing on food. She's also quite a passionate cook in her own right, reflecting on her early childhood as the reason for where she is today, where not eating her vegetables actually managed to blossom into a love of all things culinary. I think that and her experience with the Age Good Food Guide has given her the chance to not only assess but work alongside brilliant chefs such as Philippe Michel and Scott Pickett. In the episode, we talked about how it came to be uh, that she was writing for the Good Food Guide and working as a co-editor there. We spoke about core principles for her writing and how to be a good listener. And I think these two components in particular can be widely used by anyone um, in their in their job or in their role in their life. We spoke about dining and unique experiences, particularly Um, dining in the dark and what that does to the senses. We spoke about lessons learned from her parents and family history, how the actual or how her actual fascination for food came about. We spoke about types of dining experiences she enjoys, how she cooks, the industry now versus what it was when she was editing for The Age. 
We spoke about the food culture and commonalities amongst the great restaurants that she's had or been able to see. So I think if you enjoyed this episode, it may be worth checking out my chat with Angie. And it was Angie that actually introduced me to Rita. In that episode, which was episode three, we spoke about food and hospitality as well. Uh, You also may enjoy episode eight with Petros Delitis, and he is the development chef or was the development chef for celebrity chefs like George Columbaris and Shane Delia. So if you enjoy this one, make sure you go check those out. You can find uh, those on our index at neural.com slash podcast. So without any further ado or ceremony, please enjoy this conversation with Rita Ehrlich. All right, we're live. Thanks for joining me. A pleasure. Now, Rita, um, as with all guests, as I said, we like to give a little bio at the start. So this is this is what I came up with as co-editor of The Age and the Good Food Guide from 84 to 98. That's right. It's quite a, quite a tenure there. Food writer across newspapers, magazines, websites, mainly working for The Age uh, through Fairfax. An author as well, um, with the most recent book being about Scott Pickett. Um, as well, no, as the makers was the most recent oh, was one. It? Was after Scott. Yep. There you go. So the makers, Scott Pickett's a cook, a cook story, Melbourne by Menu, working across broadcasting as well. I see, and currently just writing, hosting. I'm a big reader of your blog. Obviously, reading about oh, Singapore good, good, recently. Good. Excellent. And selecting the Bocostur. Bocostur. Now I don't select the candidate, but I'm on the panel. The, the panel, yeah. And I do these days. I'm doing quite a lot of public speaking, and I'm doing a bit of mentoring and advisory work. Now, how we came to this was actually, as I said to yourself, when I interview a guest, I always like to ask them if you were to recommend one person, who would it be? And I asked Angie and she said, yourself, how did you guys meet? That's a really good question. I can't remember exactly when we met, but I think we met when she was the sommelier for um, the, what was what's now the maid establishment, where, when she was the sommelier at um, mm, the place on Exhibition Street that keeps changing its name. Uh, oh, when she was at the press club? Yeah, press oh, club. Okay. But we must have met before then, um, but that's when I got to know her a bit mm-hmm. and got to know her much more when she opened her own place. Yeah. Well, Epoca. I, I do love that place. Yeah, Epoca is wonderful. Now, how – I mean, the first thing I think about when I look at someone who co-edited The Good Food Guide – Mm-hmm. is how did you get into this? Ah, um, by accident. Well, sort of by accident, by accident and by design. When I was talking about this with um, with uh, with a group on over the weekend and explaining how I got into all of this, and I began as a journalist. Okay. And I began as a freelancer and then slid into full-time work. And I did my first freelance writing when I was, uh, which was about food, when I was doing my master's thesis on the late plays of Shakespeare. Okay. Every girl needs a hobby, mine was food <laughs> writing. Uh, and there wasn't much of it. And then when I eventually joined The Sun, um, I, was, I was a feature writer, not a food writer, but I did two things when I was on The Sun. 
One was that I wrote the first restaurant reviews The Sun had ever run. There was a series of six of them, and if I'm not wrong, the budget was $10 for two. (laughs) Um, And I took over a new market column. The cooking, uh, they'd established a market column, which was a list of prices and so on and so on. The uh, cookery editor, Nancy Baldwin, was responsible for that. And she was going on holiday not long after the column had been established. So I was asked if I knew anything about food and in the way that journalists did, which was not to show any any enthusiasm. I said, yeah, a bit. Why? (laughs) And, well, could you take over the market column? It just involves uh, ringing round for prices. I said, I've got a better idea. Why don't I go to the market, have a good look around, then come into work? And then write the column. Can you get it done by deadline? Of course I can. Um, and because I was writing about what I was seeing and what I was smelling and what you could do with what was in season without giving formal recipes, the column was a huge success. So they said to me, look, can you keep doing it? Huh. Um, and so I did. Uh, when I joined The Age, um, I wasn't doing anything to do with food except that Claude Farrell who was then in charge of the food, pa- food and wine pages, asked Dan O'Donovan, who was the publisher of the Age Good Food Guide, if she knew of anyone who might make a good reviewer. Now, Anne and her late husband were mates of my late ex-husband, um, and so they'd come round for dinner a fair bit and we knew each other really well. And Anne said to Claude, well, I know Rita knows about food. She certainly knows about cooking. And you can read what, yeah, how she writes. Ask her. So Claude asked me if I'd do a restaurant review as a trial, and I did, and that led to another and another. And then I wrote a column when, and then I resigned just before my first, son was born and worked freelance for seven years. Um, and I wrote a number of columns, and one of them was called Table Talk, which was about food and ingredients. The thing about food writing and about Claude, and I can't thank Claude enough, Claude's really responsible for my career, um, <laughs> is that I was writing across three sections of the paper. There was a recession the, the the order went out, as it always does during recessions, that only freelancers who were regarded as essential were allowed to keep writing. Everything had to be done in-house. Claude said to me, I regard you as essential. The arts pages and the other pages said, oh, see you later, nice knowing you. <laughs> so the opportunities for me grew. Um, then Claude... Asked Claude and Anna Donovan asked me if I'd join Claude co-editing the guide, and so how, how long had the guide been around for before? Three then? years okay. began in nineteen eighty. There was a guide for two years before that, published by Angus and Robertson, and which was a compilation of reviews done in the newspaper by Peter Smark, Anne Latrail, and Ben Hills. But there had been some falling out with Angus and Robertson, I think, and um, Peter Smark approached Anne O'Donovan 
and someone at the age. So Anne took over editing the Age Good Food Guide, which was then new and never been done before and pretty exciting. Yeah. So you you really just fell into this? Yes. I mean, all the time I was doing other work. Um, And I was doing all the other all the other journalism stuff. Um, so what I brought to food writing was what Claude brought to food writing, and that was a very strong sense of journalism. Yeah. What What was your earliest memory of wanting to be a journalist? When I was about seven. Really? Yeah. And then everyone said to me, oh, no, 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 you'll never make a journalist. No, 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 do something <laughs> else. No, 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 no. So the funny thing was that I ended up in journalism. What do you think was that inspired that at that age? Oh, I think I know. I mean, I'm sure I know. I had an uncle who was a journalist <laughs> who died before I was born. So that's um, – and so I knew about journalists. Yeah. And as a family, we were – Devoted to news and newspapers. Yeah, there's always like sort of an archetype that you you look to when you know you have that yeah. aha moment that that's what you want to be. So. Well, um, it it's interesting that I I'm not sure I had when I was very little any clear sense of what journalism involved, <laughs> but I do remember when I was about eleven or twelve buying teach yourself journalism books. <laughs> <laughs> like a dummy's guide to journalism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And your family, you said, have always been involved in papers and so forth? No, only as, as consumers. Okay. I mean, my uncle was a journalist. Yeah. And um, and a writer. So it's rather nice that I am too. Yeah. And there's clearly, a, 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 I mean, a writing gene in the family because I keep discovering distant cousins who are writers and biographers and journalists. Yeah. I think I've... It sort of dawned on me in the last few months. I've always been fascinated by media, and I didn't know why. And then I just, it just clicked. Like my, really, my family is a family of printers. Ah. So my grandfather, on my dad's side, is um, a Greek immigrant who came out, and he started the first Greek newspaper, which was called the Persos, which means the torch. Yep. And then he also started the first Sunday newspaper. Um, I think it was just called The Sun at the time. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, it went out of business mainly because um, the Herald was threatening his staff for working on Sundays. Oh. And because he, he would get freelance, you know, printers to come oh, of course, work on a Sunday. Of course. Um, but yeah, and then all of, uh, all of his sons except one did a printing apprenticeship, of course. Yeah. It's as if the course is set for you. It is, yeah. And I mean, it's funny because he was able to marry his wife, my grandmother, who's still alive now, um, because I think her father respected him, even though he was an immigrant, because he was also a printer. Oh, that makes perfect yeah. sense. And he was also very good off because he was very good at offset printing, um, not offset uh, linotype. L- linotype, yep. yeah. So, oh, fabulous! Yeah, it's all sort of clicked for me recently. That sort of fascination with the I don't know what it is about media, but there's something about it. Well, it's interesting you say all of that because my uncle was edited the first Yiddish newspaper in Australia in the 1920s. Um, And I joined the Jewish News, which was my first 
job in journalism, and from there I went to the Sun. So that's how you cut your teeth. Yeah, <laughs> and the lovely thing was that there were people there who were in the newspaper and the printing, there was also printing works, who actually remembered my uncle. Right. Or knew of him. So there would be these lovely, and I was lucky enough to have my own office, which was rare, but these lovely, a couple of lovely old men, the Yiddish editor still, who was then, what, in his 70s or something, used to come into my office from time to time, look at me, just pat my shoulder and go out again. <laughs> yeah. And I think because he was remembering my uncle. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had the same thing. I had random people come up to me and just say thanks. And I mean, I unfortunately, he passed away when I was six, so I've only faint memories of him for at least a year yeah. or so. Um, but it was funny because that year we actually lived with our grandparents because my parents were building a house. Um, but yeah, it's 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 really strange. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's the I don't know the the co- sense of community or the sense or, of um, people knowing you and affection yeah, because you're doing that. a public thing. And, yeah, all of that. Yeah. Neither of my sisters um, went into writing. Yeah. So I'm the one who's the writer. Um, and I realise the, the more I do, the more I realise that the two really, really important things for me about writing, whether it's in journalism or food writing, two things. One is telling the story and the other is getting the record straight mm-hmm. and the importance of being a witness uh, I'm, I was, I'm very, very conscious of that, having come back from Vietnam and looked at the museum and the photographs. But I've always had that sense that the most important thing you can do is to get it right. How do you then, what are your sort of core principles or methodologies or, I don't know, mental models that you go through to then transpose all of that? Into, into what I'm doing. Well, yeah. my, the, the range of my writing is very broad. So it changes. It, it keeps changing. So, for instance, with um, when I did worked with Scott Pickett on his book and Philippe Michel with More Than French, a lot of it was just listening, 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 and listening to what's not said. Because hearing the silence is as important as listening to the words. Hmm. And the silence is where the story is. Yeah, this is this is the greatest thing that I've learned about doing this podcast is um, it sort of teaches because you go back and you have to listen to your voice a lot, mm. which gets a bit annoying. <laughs> but you you definitely learn. It's definitely made me a better listener. I think. Yeah, I think a lot of people, particularly in business, don't do that. I mean, a lot of our audience is in that. Um, corporate and tech and startup that's, space. That's right. And it's terribly important. That I mean, the thing I learned most of all, those, though a friend said to me, you didn't learn it, it's what made you good interviewer, was the, the ability to listen. And the other thing, and here I am chatting nonstop, how would you know? <laughs> um, but the ability to give someone your undivided attention is really, really important. If you want someone to talk to you, you give them your undivided attention. Now, how does one get better at that or how does one do that? What can people 
think about is as simple as sit down and shut up. Saying just enough so that people know they can talk to you. Okay. And I used to allow an hour and an hour and a half for most interviews. Yeah, they come down to eight hundred words or so, whatever. And the thing I learned. I suppose someone could have learned all this from experience, is the first 20, 25 minutes is given up to establishing a relationship. Yeah, an offering. And, and then you, you offer as much of yourself so that people know they can talk to you. <laughs> and then you shut up. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's about um, saying, mm, mm-hmm, go on. And saying all those things, and then only asking questions, direct questions, when you really need a clear answer. It's different with feature writing and news writing. Yes. News writing is all about direct questions. I need the answer to how many? How many? What, you know, what time was this exactly? What did you say? Um, feature writing is different where you're getting a sense of the person. Yeah. It reminds me of the conversation we had earlier about trust and you were at that restaurant in Vietnam. Oh, yeah. yes, noir, yeah. where you eat, it's black, you eat in the dark. There are versions of it all over the place. But in, in Vietnam, um, it's staffed by people who are either blind or partially sighted and they lead you into, your, into a room and you sit down and food is brought to you and you eat in the dark, and it does very funny things to your your other senses. <laughs> um, it made me, I was told most people talk more loudly in the dark, and I think they must have done because it made me hugely sensitive to sound. It made me much more sensitive, even more sensitive to texture, and I wasn't hungry. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I found that although I, I thought I was hungry, when if I had to eat in the dark, I was really very cautious about eating. Huh. Um, and no one drank much. I, I laughed about that and said that's because we were all frightened of knocking over our glasses. <laughs> um, and when I came, when we came into the light, my sense of balance was a bit strange. Huh. Uh, it's interesting how much uh, I was sitting next to a chef, and between us, we recognised lots of flavours. Um, but it's often quite difficult to recognise a flavour if you can't see it. Yeah, yeah, the, your sense of um, well, I've had this debate with my partner about what would you prefer to lose: your sight, your taste, your hearing, or your smell. <gasps> Oh, no, 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 not a choice, not a choice. And um, you've got five wits, five senses, you need yeah. all of them. Yeah, well, there's touch as well. But, yeah. Um, yeah, particularly for eating, I've just always thought, what would, oh. be, what would oh, be the hardest? The hardest. Because, mm. um, you know, like my, um, actually when my, my grandmother, um, my grandfather passed away, she had another partner for about 10 years and mm -hmm. he was blind. And he actually said to me that being blind isn't as hard as what people think it would be. Yeah. And, I mean, it's easy for him to say because he built a house as a blind man. He built an entire house. Oh, he's got own. a great sense of touch. Then. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's true because I know someone else who's, who's blind and who's blind, who was blind pretty much um, since birth. Yeah. He's a whiz opening bottles. Yeah. With a corkscrew. Yeah. 
Um, so I think whatever sense you lose your competence at, I'd hate to lose my hearing. Um <laughs> because I rely on it for all sorts of things, quite apart from loving music. Um, I listen to cities when I travel. Yeah, Every city has a different sound. And my game is, I was saying to my partner, it's, it, it'd be lovely to compile a CD of city sounds and to, to do a mystery city. It's so true, that. It's, it's very true. It reminds yeah. me of being in Europe with family and someone complaining about a particular siren. That you hear, yeah, insert, like, you know, one country has a particular weird-sounding siren and it puts you off. I don't know why. That's right, because you think they're after you. <laughs> <laughs> Is there? You mentioned before about your family and your uncle. Do you have any lessons that you've learnt directly or indirectly from either of your parents? Yes. Oh, lots and lots of lessons. Um, curiosity. Okay. Um, my father was endlessly curious and my mother was an extraordinary listener. Huh. Now, there we are. Just, everyone told her everything um, because she listened and she didn't gossip. It's a good trait to have. Really good. My mother was also a very good cook. Um, not in that she cooked beautiful dishes, but she cooked. What I learned from her in cooking was the spirit of cooking. The spirit of good cooking is about um, doing the best you can every day. <laughs> and I met, she was very, very good at baking and at pastries. Those were her real skills. And She's been dead for nearly 20 years. A friend of mine met a woman who, from 40 years ago, when she was newly engaged and invited to my parents for afternoon tea, remembered my mother's cakes. <laughs> it's such a nice thing. She, she, was she alive? She'd smile and look rather pleased. Um, so... That's what I learnt from them. I also think I learnt oh, all sorts of life skills about um, just getting on with it. Yeah. Do you think then your mother's love for cake and creating cakes is, in, is inspiring your next book? I hadn't thought of it, but possibly. Possibly because I'm aware of that many of her cakes have stories. Yeah. There's a lovely, there's an amazing story about one of the cakes. She used to tell me that when she was in Poland, she had a memory of a cake made of potatoes. It was a childhood memory. She'd never found a recipe anywhere. Um, so this was a recipe, a memory from when she was 10 or 12 or something, maybe younger. And then she came home one day from an afternoon tea and said to me, I found it. I tasted the cake again. And however many years later, 60 years later, she was tasting a cake she remembered from her childhood and she got the recipe and it is indeed made with potatoes and it's a dead ringer for a really light cheesecake. Really? Mm. So it's just cheese? No, no cheese, no cheese. Potatoes, eggs, almonds, sugar. Really? Yep. Wow. It tastes like a ricotta cake. 
Okay. What what part of Poland is your family from? They well, my mother was from Lodz, and my father from a small village, not that far away, somewhere between Lodz and the the German border. Okay. Yeah, my um, my girlfriend's yeah her her father's family there. It's it's a weird mix. Her father was uh, sorry, grandfather was from uh, just outside Krakow. Yeah. Um, he obviously during the war uh, had to leave Poland. He was actually Polish ac- aristocracy. So right. his father, his father was actually murdered in the 1930s. Um, he was a captain in the army. They're not sure why, but um, yeah, just after the war, they lost most of their land, and okay. he was he was a military officer because yeah. most of the ar- aristocracy was. <laughs> and um. Yeah, he went and joined the Polish resistance and worked for MI5 or is it MI6? MI5, I think. Wow. Yeah, so he's, he was an he intelligence was a, agent that yeah. spoke seven languages. And uh, he's, my girlfriend's grandmother is German. So she's from Pomerania near near the border, what would be the border now, but it would have been part of... Um, the borders kept shifting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to make it out. But yeah, she obviously... It, back then, it would have been a bad thing to to marry a Pole just after the after the war, as it would have been a bad thing for him to marry a German. Yeah, but yeah, they both got married and then came straight out to Australia, and getting as far from Poland as yeah. they possibly could. Exactly, but um, I I, I do like Poland. I remember going there in two thousand twelve, yeah. and we were in Krakow and 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 saw that whole region. Oh, okay, I've never been there. Yeah, um, because. Mum and Dad never said very firmly, Australia's our home. Yeah. What? So when did your family come out here? My mother came to Australia in 1926. Okay. And my father came in 1937. Okay. Right. And they're both uh, Jewish? Yes. Yeah. Wow, that's very lucky. And there were lots of people who came out in 26 because there was a, um, a Polish minister of finance who taxed Jewish businesses very heavily. Yeah. Um, so the Smorgans came out in 1926, 25, 26, huh. and various other families as well. Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of immigration during that era. I think one thing that's often forgotten, although a lot of people focus on um, the German regime, is that there was still a lot of pogroms that were happening oh, in Eastern Europe from, well, the Soviets were the worst, yeah, obviously, but it was still happening through yeah, Eastern lot, Europe. Yeah, that's right. Lots and lots of terrible things happening. The other interesting thing was that in the 1920s, um, Australia wasn't keen, this is so yeah. familiar, yeah. on non-English speaking immigrants. Yeah. Uh, how familiar does that sound? Yeah. Um, so, and I know that immigration from Italy was very severely limited at some point in the late 20s, partly because so many Italians were emigrating. So the Italian government and the Australian government struck a deal to limit the number of Italians who would be taken into Australia. How do you think that it changed around the war period? Because I just, I wonder, we, we could never know. How it was that my grandfather got here? Like he, his choices were here or Argentina. I just wonder at the time would they have? Would the governments have thought 
okay, we've lost X amount of men, we need I don't know. People. I don't know. I don't know how it all worked. And the funny thing is that um, if you'd asked you, if you'd been able to ask your grandfather, he probably wouldn't have told you. Mm. That's definitely true. He was uh, lucky though that he he went to an English college. He, he they're well, from Cyprus. Spoke, so. Oh, okay. So if he spoke, um, yeah, it's it's uh, people end up in all sorts of countries that. Yeah, by accident or design. But he—he, he, I think he was particularly lucky because um, he was very poor, very poor family. Mm. Um, his father was an only child. His mother was an only child. Um, his father died from gangrene. Oh, yeah, he was a printer at the time, and um, he literally was able to come out because he was very, very good at English. Okay, a useful uh, skill. And a printer as well. Yep. Yeah, so he had two skills. Yeah, so, yeah, he came out here and then five years later brought his mother out. Yeah. Um, now, thinking about your your mother and, and, like, at what point did this fascination and, and interest in food sort of explode for you? You know, because you said beforehand that you, you started getting into doing the market stuff yeah. and it wasn't really there, but when did it sort of click? Well, two things to know. One is that as a kid, I was an extraordinarily fussy eater. <laughs> Aren't uh, we all, though? Well, I didn't eat vegetables till I was 18. Oh, wow. Um, and then my tastes changed totally. And by the time whatever age I was... 21 or something, I was really interested in food that tasted good and it was presented well and all of that and the whole experience of a meal, although I'd grown up with it, but same same experiences but slightly different. Now, I didn't have a mu- enough money to go out much, so I learned how to cook. <laughs> what was your go-to dish when you first started? Um... There were a number of them, I think. I was just experimenting, seeing what I could make and what I couldn't. And I had a mother who could read a recipe and say, mm, that's not going to work. I remember the I had this horrible <laughs> dish. For me, it was pasta because I loved Jamie Oliver when yeah. I first started getting into cooking at like 13 or 14. And I particularly remember making this dish. It was horrendous. It was penne pasta mm-hmm. and I decided to get the pataks paste thing like a tiny little dollop of that oh yes yeah with cream tasted all right for the time but my god and a bit of tomato and something like that yeah Yeah, it's not 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 the greatest mix no i've improved since then i'm sure (laughs) confit duck tonight (laughs) Uh, that's a big improvement so i mean i and the other thing is that i really a lot of my food knowledge comes because i really like cooking um, and because I look like cooking and because I'm curious, it then becomes a, well, where does this dish come from and how does that work and why why is Turkish food different from Greek food and um, why is French food so regional and what are the influences and so on. So these are the questions I started out with before I even began writing about food. Yeah. Um, so when, by the time I started reviewing restaurants, um, I'd done a lot of travelling, a lot of a fair amount of eating out by that stage because I wasn't quite so poor, and because I had a husband who wasn't poor, um, so we'd done a lot of eating. I'd done a huge amount of travelling, 
Um, where where and have cooking. you traveled? Sorry. Um, I'd lived in England. I'd traveled a lot in France and in Italy. Wow. Um, and it was in the early 70s, it was really interesting traveling in both those countries if you didn't have a huge amount of money because small places fed you really, really well. As you still find in both countries if you end up in small villages, which are tourist centers. Do you have a meal that stands out from your time back then? Oh, my time back then. Lots of them, in fact. Um, the thing I rem- remember very clearly is the very, very first meal I ate in Paris when <laughs> I was there, traveling on my own. And I went to a little restaurant that I could afford. And I think of the food now, and it really wasn't very good, but it was served with great ceremony. <laughs> So, and that's the thing I remember about it, that a very simple meal was served as if it were a very grand meal. So I had, what was it, I think mackerel fillets with fresh herbs on it and some white wine, and then a piece of terrible steak um, with a green salad and then a little cheese and then a piece of fruit. And everything was, and there was some, chips there too on a presented on a platter on the table but it was that sense of ceremony and I thought this is really nice and then I ate my way around various things and I remember a couple of meals in Italy where I just thought wow this is this is a meal from which I have a lot to learn in terms of flavours and simplicity, just pulling things back, not putting too much on the plate, letting flavours speak, letting flavours talk to each other on the plate. Hmm. Do you think then you would have been able to have that experience in Australia or would it have been well, not possible because it wasn't the industry wasn't there? The, um, it was done slightly differently here. Um, there was never that sense, that same sense of ceremony, unless you went really upmarket. But um, I can't think of a place in Melbourne in the sixties where a very small meal would have been, and cheap meal would have been presented as if it were a much grander meal. Yeah. Um, and it's that. Um, what I what. What I always love is that sense of, I have made this for you, eat it. (laughs) Um, And that's compelling, whether it's domestic or professional. And certainly it's, it's the thing I look for in professional cooking. And it's why I get so cranky with, um, the style of cooking that depends entirely on the chef's ego. Yeah. Um, that sense of, I am more important than your palate. Yeah. I am more important than what I can do in the kitchen is more important than the, the rhythm of the meal. So that I have real trouble. And every so often I come across one where it's perfect and I have to break down all my prejudices. But in theory, I have trouble where I have end, more than eight courses 
of food that's all very, very highly worked. Because what you what you taste in the end is the, the work, not the ingredients. Yeah. It sort of seems like and I've had a chef on here with he focuses on wood fire cooking. Mm-hmm. Um it's called Atlas Dining in uh in Paran. He's a very young chef actually. Yeah. And um the way that I was the an, the analogy I was using with him was in the finance world you have two schools of thought. Mm-hmm. You have the efficient market theorists who use all kinds of fancy maths and algorithms mm. and systems and so forth to make money. But then you also have the value investors, the Warren Buffetts of the world mm. who just sort of pair things back and look at the simplicity of it to create and in, And something have valuable. their own internal discussion. Yeah. So to me, when I go to these restaurants and it's, I don't know, I just really enjoy those experiences where you come and you feel like the chef He's having you, he's hosting you for the night. Yeah. You've met this person. It's like going out for dinner that, to a friend's that, house. That's right. Yeah. The thing I don't like, um, I don't like places where you can't have a conversation because every course there is a way to say, excuse me, I'd like to present this dish to you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, and in an odd way... Um, what you find with really good meals is that the quality of the conversation is fabulous. And I keep trying to work out how that is, but I think I know how it works. If the food's no good, everyone's a bit miserable. <laughs> if the food is too demanding, then the conversation keeps being interrupted. Yeah. So if over a really good meal, there's that magic that happens when your blood sugar's right and you've had enough, you're having enough to eat and enough to drink and you're made welcome and you feel free to, to bring out your best self. Yeah. What, what do you think it is about those restaurants that, that do that? Is there something there underlying in uh, us that, what, uh, that they unlock? Over the years, I have paired everything back. Um, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, what are the things that matter in a restaurant? It would have been one answer. 20 years ago, it would have been another. These days, I just say, it's a sense of hospitality. Huh. Um, and that's in the end the only thing that matters. Because from that, everything else flows. Yeah. If you care for your guests, then you make sure they're comfortable, they're well-fed, they've got things to choose from when they want to drink stuff. Um, it, rem- it actually reminds me now, when I was working for Angie, she said to me, she sent me a message or something or had mentioned to me, you should read this week's Epicure. And it was an interview with the, maybe, maybe it was the weekend of the Epicure, but mm. it was with the owner of Distasio. And he spoke about how, um, anyone could go to any restaurant, whether mm. it's his or, or others, and, you know, he doesn't think Distasio is particularly good, but he thinks that what they offer and what good restaurants offer that are timeless is… a is, sense of occasion yeah, too. And, and experience that's, and… That's right. And service. That's right. Yeah. Um, it's funny, I interviewed Ronnie once, but he's very shy about being interviewed. Yeah. It was a very… Um, yeah. You could tell they'd gotten an interview which was quite unique. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but it's true. You, I mean, what you want is, like that little restaurant in Paris, what you want is a sense of ceremony or occasion, whatever it is. I mean, it can be a cheese sandwich. <laughs> um, but you want it presented as if it matters. Yeah. When it comes to your own principles on cooking, do, mm. you, do you have any? Is there anything that you look for? When I'm cooking, yeah. Who I'm who I'm cooking for is what I'm looking at. <laughs> like, what are the what are the flavors or things that you can't go without? All herbs. All herbs. Herbs is what I I want in a meal, and I like. Um, Do you have a garden of herbs at home? Yeah, yeah. Um, what I want in a meal is the rhythm of a meal. Um, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, I like, I don't want ingredients or cooking techniques or flavors repeated unless I'm making, say, a dinner that's all about lemons. Okay. Or all about mushrooms. Or, and I'm saying to people, look, I want to have some fun with whatever ingredient. Come, we're going to have a whatever meal. But for the most part, it's about. Um, making sure that the foods, the courses are varied. And so usually there is, and that that changes according to the meal. So, you know, some meals we might start with a big antipasto table, um, some meals, and I, I always put food on the table. I almost never plate it. Okay. And that was, I think, a, two things caused that. One was when my kids were very small and they were very fussy eaters. Two, I got to the stage of thinking, right, I'm just going to put everything on the table. People can work out what they – big people, small people, work out what they want to eat, what they don't, that's fine. But the other thing too is once I started re reviewing restaurants and everything was plated up, then having – Platters of food on the table and bowls of food on the table was my way of differentiating what I ate domestically from what I was eating professionally. Yeah. Now that's all changed because all food is, yeah. <laughs> is served in it's platters all now. It's all it, for sharing. Yeah, yeah, it's all for sharing now. What do you think about that? Oh, look, I'm very fond of it. It makes me feel at home. <laughs> but I had um, lunch today <coughs> before I came here with my son and daughter-in-law and their baby, who behaved beautifully. Um, and we were at a restaurant where the food was shared, and we were talking about shared food. And I was telling them that in Singapore, I'd met a family of Americans at, at a very simple restaurant we ate at, who'd clearly never shared food before. And the waiter didn't speak enough English to say to them, no, no, you don't all want a serving of fried rice to yourself. <laughs> you can share it. So they all had four huge bowls of fried rice. Oh, my God. Um, and were looking a bit dismayed. Um, and then the two teenage boys, um, the waiter must have said, too much, too much, when they both said, I'll have that and I'll have that. And I think the waiter said, too much. So they had a beef dish between them. Oh, my God. Um and we were talking, I was telling them that over lunch, and also we were talking about how there are lots of people who don't like to share. 
And I was saying that the reason this particular restaurant we were at um, was probably wasn't busy at lunchtime was that I don't think corporates like to share food. Sharing information may be, (laughs) may be, but (laughs) But not not food. food. Wow, that's interesting. When it comes then to home cooks, what what do you think of the 20% of, you know, tools or methods that matter is it knife skills is it a good knife is it um I, there are three four three things that are really important for me one of them is my hands okay the other's my nose <laughs> and the other's a good knife mm-hmm. um i've got a food processor I use it sometimes. I've got a blender. I use it sometimes. Um, I've got sons who say to me, Mum, you don't have to slice the potatoes for a gratin. Use the food processor for that. It does a really good job. And I say, look, by the time I've cut things to fit the, 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 the space and I've sliced it and I've pulled things out and cleared the mess and washed it up, I've sliced a kilo and a half of potatoes by hand. It's easy. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just easy to go with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, But this, mine is is quite an old-fashioned style of cooking. Yeah. Um, So if you handed me a Thermomix, I'd I'd have no idea what to do with it. (laughs) No idea. They're very handy, though. My mother has one. Yeah. I know lots of people who – I know – Four people who have a Thermomix and who love them, yeah. absolutely love them. She makes me stock with it. I, I adore really? it. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Really? Yeah. No, no, no. Big pot. Four hours cooking. I know. Yeah. <laughs> but these things, <laughs> for for all my intolerances, this thing. Uh, I don't this know. works well. This works for you. Yeah. With all the things that she has to put in or keep out or not and put in. Yeah. If you were to. Okay, so you had your time as co-editor. Mm-hmm. How would you summarize that? How would I summarize it? Yeah. Uh, it was an extraordinary time. Working with Claude was just fantastic because we worked together entirely independently and on total trust. So you know, typically we'd begin... Um, the year by picking up the previous year's edition and going through it, working out who was going to visit all the rest, which restaurant. And so typically if he went one year, I'd go the following year. If we both felt we were too familiar with the place, we'd call in someone else to have a look at it. Okay. There were specialist reviewers for Indian, for Chinese, for Japanese. We had two specialist reviewers for Chinese um, and for Greek food, um, for the rest of it, we felt pretty comfortable doing it ourselves. So we did the bulk of it ourselves. And, and I mean, how did you decide what restaurants to go review? I mean, then it would have been easier, but I'm thinking about now, how, what sort of the process for curating a list of restaurants? Because um, you've only got so many meals that people can eat. But, and yes. then sometimes you've got a certain budget that you yeah. have to stick well, to. Well, we, we, heaven knows we ate more than our fair share of meals <laughs> because we carried the, really did the bulk of the reviewing. Exactly. Um, how did we decide? Um, 
a lot of it was about listening to people. Yep. People, friends would tell us, people would ring us and say, you really ought to try out this <laughs> restaurant or I went to such and such a place and it's no good anymore or places close. Or we'd drive, drive you know, this, when we began editing the, the Age Good Food Guide, there was virtually no PR for restaurants. <laughs> and the internet didn't exist. Yeah, Mobile phones didn't exist. How did we get our information? We talked to people. We drove around. Um, people talked to us. It, it was really pretty simple. Yeah. Um, and because particularly with Claude Restorateur would say to him, oh, look, you should go and check out so-and-so's place. Um, so we carried around a huge amount of it in our heads. <laughs> I think Claude had a big checklist of places. I used, um, I think we both used the the guide itself as a place to take notes. Yeah. So, I mean, it all sounds terribly primitive now, um, but it, it was in a funny way, I think it was much easier than managing with um, all the media we've got now. Yeah, and there's also, there would have been less places as there well. Were few, yeah, yeah, there were fewer places. Yeah. How would you, how do you view the industry then versus now? Um, like, we, let's say when you finished up at the Good Food Guy. Well, the thing that I know is that it always changes. And so uh, when... I joined Claude as co-editor. French food was the gold standard. By ninety, by the late eighties, French food was no longer the gold standard. There were more and more Chinese restaurants. Late eighties, there were fabulous Chinese restaurants in Melbourne. In the nineties, that the chefs started coming from England. Um, and so you had the whole Brit Pack thing, as it was called. And so black pudding and pork belly came onto the menu, <laughs> onto menus. Um, so the, you just get these waves of change. And now I think what we get are lots and lots of dishes because they photograph well. Yeah. How, what would you say the current theme is? Do you think you could surmise it? Ooh, what's the current theme? Oh, no, I couldn't. Um, there are too many things going on, and there is an international style of cooking now um, because everyone's reading the same books and everyone's reading the same magazines and everyone's looking at the same pictures and there are the television shows so that there is um, an international style um, shared, what's, what's the thing now? Shared plates. You can have anything you like so long as you share it. Yeah. <laughs> um, except for the more formal restaurants. And there aren't that many of those. Uh, and they, I mean, I think shared plates work wonderfully. And for restaurants, they work particularly well because they cut down on labor costs. Yeah. You don't have people plating. And, um, a platter of beans or shoulder of lamb doesn't have to look beautiful. B 
because what you see is the platter and what you smell is the platter and you think, oh, wow. Whereas if it's on a plate looking like that, you think that doesn't look very nice. No. What, what then, who stands out to you then? Who are the chefs or restaurants that really stand out to you now? Oh, there are quite a few of them for different reasons. Um, and I'm going to name the people whose work I, who, whom I know and whose work I really respect. So um, let's start because he's down the road with Philippe Michel, um, who he last Friday he marked 25 years in Australia. And Philippe has been going for a year. There was a dinner to, to celebrate, and a number of chefs who'd worked with him each cooked a course. I was MC for the evening, and it was the most extraordinary evening because I don't know another chef who commands that kind of respect. And everyone who worked with him has a bond. So these, yeah, four of them had worked at Langton's all together, and they. I asked each one of them what they'd learnt, what he or she had learnt from working with Philippe, and they all said various things. And they all said, um, "We'd drop everything for him." Um, so that's why they were all there cooking, of course. Yeah. Um, and they, I didn't, I forgot to ask them if they actually worked through the menu because the menu, as a menu, hung together beautifully. Uh, everything worked beautifully. So Philippe, and he, because his, his style of cooking is very French, very classic, very technique driven, it, for some, um, bloggers and uh, social media people, it lacks the kind of wow factor. <laughs> oh, he's not new. I mean, he's not twenty three, and he's and he's he hasn't won Master Chef, and he hasn't got his <laughs> his own restaurant at twenty four, and he hasn't won a competition. So there's that. But Philippe, um, for me, stands out. Guy Grossi mm -hmm. stands out. Um, Flower Drum stands out. Uh, Scott Pickett stands out. Angie stands out. Uh, Pierre Kodja stands out mm. at Camus. Fabulous food. Joe uh, Joe Vargetto stands out. Uh, yeah, that, that's enough to get on. <laughs> <laughs> so, if we're thinking about the industry now and then. What do you think hasn't changed at all? Um, the need to make money. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And there's yeah. definitely been yeah. cycles of it, hasn't yeah. there? Yeah, you have to have a viable business. And when people go um, rabbiting on about – I'm sorry to use the word, but I'll explain that later – rabbiting on about sustainability, they often forget that if you're not financially sustainable, you can't keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I remember we, we had um, George Columbaris's, uh and Shane Delia's. 
He was You've seen Chandelier. Maha yeah, is Maha. in there too. Yeah. Love Maha. When uh, they were part of the Prescott group, growing there was going there was amazing. Yeah, I loved it. Um, but he um, Petros, he was um, I guess the experimental chef for the two of them, mm-hmm. and we just spoke about the the different models of making money in the industry. Yep. Um, yeah, it's been intriguing to see. You know. You've got those sort of prestigious places that are timeless. I think the businesses that have done really well are the ones that have actually owned the venue yes. that they're on yes. because they can reinvent themselves. That's right, and, and they're not crippled by rising rents. Exactly. Um, as well as the ones who have, like I think now in particular, it's people like, um, you know, George who have taken sort of an idea or a style of food mm. and – it's not so much takeaway food, but have made it into a faster food. Well, the the thing that's the one of the really big changes over the last few years is that the bottom straighted up. Yeah. Um, fast foods now become not fast food, but uh, a food you pay a bit of money for. Yeah. So hamburgers are on. <laughs> that's uh, the one, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, hamburgers are the one. Um, and you look at places like um, Long Chim in um, the, uh, David Thompson's restaurant at Crown, which is taking Thai street food and glamming it up yeah. and making it quite expensive food, um, but paying great, great respect to the traditions. Yeah. When it comes to food and culture then, how would you define Melbourne as it is now? Um, as it is now, what is lovely about Melbourne, and you see it in the wine industry too, this lovely sense of let's give it a go. Yeah. Uh, what I do see in Melbourne, there was a big piece in the Fin Review magazine last Friday on restaurant groups, um, the number of uh, chefs who've, who who are presiding over Restaurant groups like the Rockpool Group, yeah. like it's happening a lot in Sydney. Um, in Melbourne, you've got a bit of that with the made establishment press club group. Um, Definitely more fragmented, though. But uh, the other thing, and the thing that's really interesting about Melbourne over the last five years, is the growth of tiny, tiny places. Mm. Most of them serving coffee, but. Um, lots of very small places, and there's been a return to the small owner-run restaurant. Yeah, and doing like a few simple things. Well, or like Pierre Codger's place at Camus. I mean, mm. Camus is a, a viable size, but there's Pierre who who's in charge of it and who's always there, um, and. It's good to see that, just as it's good to see all the um, little hole-in-the-wall places. Yeah. Yeah, you've definitely hit the nail on the head there. I mean, I I sort of realised that recently when I went up to Sydney and all the restaurants that I thought were good and I was looking at were all owned by the Maryvale crew. I was just like, oh, wow. Yep. Now, it says a huge amount about that group that they are so committed to quality. Yeah. It's like um, there's a group in New York, um, Danny Meyer's group, 
um, and I can't remember all of them, but the one I adore is the Union Square Cafe. Yeah. Absolutely adore it. And um, Gramercy Tavern has always been closed for Renault's every time I've been in New York, which hasn't been that uh, that often. And there are a number of other places he's doing too. But it's interesting how you find you can find a group where you think, right, that's a group I can trust. Yeah, yeah. But it is intriguing how in some cities certain groups just dominate yeah. over others. Okay, when it comes to – we've spoken about chefs um, and leaders – I mean, if someone was just starting out in this game, how, what would you recommend for them to do? Like, are the, everyone's a blogger now. Yep. I mean, everyone can write. It's it's so easy or to not. transport. And, or not. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you know what I mean. It's so easy to just get if on and start Everyone talking. thinks they can write, yep. But what is it that makes people different? Is it that in... Uh, that curiousness that you spoke about earlier, is it being willing to for, investigate? For, for bloggers, oh, absolutely. I think if someone wanted to get a, 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 and have a similar career to yourself, writing about mm-hmm. food, would, would would there be something different that you'd suggest? What would I say to them? I'd say eat. Yeah. Um, travel, eat, talk to people, talk to producers, um, find out how things are grown, where they're grown. Um, learn to taste, learn to, to, to uh, practice tasting, practice smelling. Um, be prepared to learn what your own prejudices are okay. and acknowledge them. And how they may filter through yeah. with your writing. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, um, I'm aware of my prejudices. I'm aware that they can often be bowled over. <laughs> um, and, but the thi- and the thing I know about myself is that I'm quite easily pleased but very hard to impress. Mm. So I'm quite, quite a good guest you know, in a restaurant because I don't whinge, I don't complain unless something's terrible. Um, what about their creative process? How can people become better writers? Because oh, I, you know, read, 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 read. If you want to be a better writer, you read as much as you can. Okay. And you read different styles and I would send people off to a whole range of uh, – oh, if, if different styles of food writing, okay, I can think of a number of styles you'd, you'd – Look at. There's the A.A. Gill style of reviewing, which isn't a style I particularly care for. There, there was an American writer called, um, who's a journalist and a war correspondent called A.J. Liebling, who, whose writing about food is miraculous, just gorgeous. Um, his ability to take you into a place is unsurpassed and he's witty and the other thing don't take yourself too seriously <laughs> um and leave room for people to make up their own minds i think the re for me always i like it is not a term of criticism okay it tells me about you it doesn't tell me about what the dish is like 
And as a reviewer, I always used to say, people don't care, care to hoots if I liked it or not. What they really want to know is whether they're going to like it. Okay. So I don't know if that's still true, because given that you know there's much more sense of personality around, um, so that if if so and so likes it, then we'll like it too. <laughs> what would be the myths and mistakes? What would be the myths then, or or mistakes that people could commonly make getting into this area? Like what are the things they don't tell you about being a journalist and food? What are the things that that m- you know, they're sort of blinded by the glamour of it all. Um, keep asking questions. The same questions always apply. Who, why, what, when, where? Yeah, Who's cooking the food? Why are they cooking it? Why are they doing it that way? Where are they cooking it? How's it being done? How's it presented? Um, where's it grown? Does it matter? Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Um, because people say they have a rooftop garden, yeah, that's nice, dear. But, <laughs> um, but how much of the food do you actually produce? Yeah. If it's a rooftop garden and we provide all our own vegetables and I'm only getting one baby carrot, hmm, go and buy some more carrots. Yeah. Find, find someone whose carrots are good. Yeah, less gimmick and more substance. Yeah. Um, let, it, me, let me put this yeah. to you then. If you had three prospective journalists, food writers, and you had 12 weeks to train them and you had a million bucks on the line. And to, tra- to spend or? That you could win if you were successful, if they were a somewhat. Oh, okay. Well, where are they going to be successful? That's the challenge now, In that f- there are fewer and fewer outlets for f- freelance writers. Okay. Um, and there's a, there are a lot more people comp- competing for, f- for, for less space. So we'll leave aside, aside whether they're going to get a job or not. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you train people? I, I actually, I've done it a couple of times over the years. Um, and you say, t- uh, what would I do? I'd say to someone... Find the detail that matters. Find the detail that's the key to the place and lead with that. And sometimes it's the smell. Sometimes it's the design. Sometimes it's the noise. Sometimes it's the queue outside the restaurant. There's always one detail that, that unlocks it. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a positive or negative thing. It's just the thing that leads in yeah, their mind. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and you know, for some people, the cue is a really positive thing. For some people, it's not. For some people, the roar of, of, um, of a full restaurant is a lovely thing because it means atmosphere. For others, it's less attractive. Okay. Uh, so I'd say, first of all, find the detail that matters and always look for details. Okay. The generic um, generic descriptions aren't helpful. It's the detail that uh, that tells people you were actually there and you ate that food, and talk about the what you ate and what you saw and what you smelt and what you heard, rather than imagining it. Mm. 
though there are there are and and don't be afraid to think metaphorically and to have fun to you know because if it's not nice if it's not amusing to read nobody's going to bother I mean, if you're just giving a catalogue of mouthful after mouthful after mouthful, that's a bit, oh, yeah, okay, I'll turn the page now or move on to the next, scroll down to the next thing. Um, one of the cleverest, cleverest uh, things I read in a review was by an English uh, reviewer called Catherine Fleet, who was describing a madly fashionable restaurant, and she took a friend there for lunch whether a real or an imagined friend, and she described one of the dishes where there were an awful lot of things on the plate, all of them very fashionable ingredients. And she cited her friend looking at her plate and saying, I think they all met at a party and I don't think it's going to last. (laughs) (laughs) that's one of the cleverest judgment calls I've read. Yeah. Ever. That's funny. It really is funny. So there's no – and the other thing, you've got to find your own voice, and that's really hard. Now, opposingly, if you were to give these recommendations to a new chef – not a new chef, but a chef that was just about to start their own place and – You've highlighted before the restaurants that you really respect. Mm. What do you think is common amongst them that people can can grab a hold of and use in their oh, own unique way? Oh, I, I know it's common to them all. Uh, two things. One is a thumbprint. It's that restaurant and no other. It's not an identikit restaurant. Maha isn't a restaurant that you can find repeated here and there and everywhere else. Uh. Now, but how does one do that? Um, you've got a very clear sense of your own identity and what you're trying to do, and you're not afraid to modify it because my house changed a yeah. bit. The food's changed, the decor's certainly changed. The decor that everyone loved because it was dark and moody suddenly looked dark and oppressive <laughs> and, um, and was changed and lightened and brightened. Um, the mood of the food is just the same. And so is that combination that was particular to Shane where he puts together in his head the flavours of his family, of his in-laws, the flavours of places he's travelled, restaurants he's eaten. He works it together with techniques of cooking. So go back and work out who you are first. Yeah, who you are. What are you trying to say? Yeah, the real question, what are you trying to say? And that's true for writers too. Yeah. Yeah. What are you trying to say? Yeah. Um, what, What do you want to say? What's the first thing you want to say about this place? What's the last thing you want to say about this place? What's the bit in the middle going to be? And so sense of identity and professionalism. Okay. Yeah, I think I think you're right about that. Seeing places that are same same to one another, it, it in a way it almost because you, you go to a certain place and this is my style. I, I like this for Japanese in this style of Japanese. Maybe it's barbecue. Mm. You know, uh, we've got like a particular place we love going to for barbecue meat. Um, but then you you see other places that do that, but they don't. They just don't stand out. Yeah, you know, and you would just. In your mind, you don't go to them because yeah. why would That's, I? There's, uh, there's, I mean, 
what I see now is that there's quite a lot of ordinary food around. And you see it in Italian, uh, well, in in all sorts of food. You see ordinary food and you think, look, and I remember saying to Alex a couple of times, look, if I'd known we were going to eat like this, if I wanted ordinary food, we would have stayed home on a bad night. <laughs> Um, And what do I mean by ordinary food? Food that's been cooked without any particular thought, that nobody's eaten. I can always tell food that nobody's tasted. Or where you've got a chef who thinks that um, because all these ingredients are what everyone's using, if you put more of them together, (laughs) it's going to make a better dish. Yeah, this plus, yeah, in a way, because humans are just pattern recognition machines and they go, okay, well, this is working for famous people. I'll put this all together. Yeah, that's right. And you want to say, sit, don't just taste it, sit down and eat it. Yeah. Okay, eat it with someone else. Now tell me what you think of it. <laughs> when it comes to your whole career now, is there anything that you think you would have done differently? Uh a number of things, and I'm not prepared to talk about them. <laughs> uh, well, let me put this to yeah. you then. What what apparent failure at the time, or what seemed like a failure to you at the time, career-wise, or even in, in your own life, actually set you up for a, a very oh, good look, opportunity? Um, I... The... It sounds odd. Um... I ne- it never occurred to me to make much of myself <laughs> um, so that had I done things differently, I would have had a a different profile um, I would be better known to younger to a younger generation um I might have been richer <laughs> I would have been richer uh does it matter not that much no um what pleases me most is the respect that the people I value have for me and that that's re- for me really really important the, to have a good name is really really important mm. and that and the good name's something you earn it, it no one says to you right you're it <laughs> you and, and i had really very little i didn't set out to be a food writer that's the other thing. I didn't yeah. set up to do – it just happened and it grew. And because it, to, it took me to all the places I wanted to be in my head as well as actually – I kept with it because I've written about agriculture, I've written about horticulture, I've written about food politics, I've written about history and nutrition and people and all those things – and that's fabulous. Of course, I, of course, I wrote more and more about food. Mm. 
because of where it's led me. And I'm particularly interested now in what you might, what I'm, you could call food and cultural history, and and what we choose to eat individually and as a community says about us. Hmm. I want to jump into some faster questions now. Yep. What? Like, like speed dating, <laughs> speed question. <laughs> Do you have a morning ritual? No. Do you meditate? No. What? Well, I do have a morning ritual. I wake up in the morning. <laughs> um, I don't eat much breakfast. Okay. Can't eat on an empty stomach. If you were to get up and you had to do the, – the reference I make is um, TED Talks, which is like a famous, uh, you know, talk brand that they export around the world. Melbourne has its own one now. Really? Okay. Yeah, and if you were to get up and let's say in front of a crowd of 200 people and you could talk about anything but it isn't food or wine or this stuff that you've spent your career on, what would it be? Music. Okay. Gardening. Gardening? Yeah, knitting, anything. <laughs> <laughs> the importance of doing things you don't normally do. That's what I'd be talking about. Okay. Find something that's completely different. And explore that. That's what I'd talk about. What do you think that you're most proud of thus far? On a personal level, my family. Um, most proud of them. Hugely proud of them. On a professional level, my reputation. Okay. Do you have in your mind a best... I say best purchase to a lot of people, but they often go to experiences, so I'll, <coughs> I'll give you that out clause. A best purchase or experience under $200 in the last few years? Hmm. Um, best purchase would be um, a couple of cooking pots, but then they're more expensive. Um, I've got lots and lots of cooking, uh, cooking, uh, serving equipment rather than cooking equipment. Best experience under two hundred dollars would be. Now this is going back a bit, but a meal we had in Italy at a um, a distillery on a wildly busy day, where the food was uh, they had. A, a few dishes they served, so you, they told you what they had in the kitchen and you made your choice. And I had the best lasagna I've ever, ever had, followed by the most beautiful veal and silver beet. Where was this? Where in Italy? Uh, in, in near Vicenza. Okay. I'm hungry already thinking <laughs> about the lasagna. And, and, um, the wine was Lambrusco, which was really odd, but it went really well with the food. Huh. What? I think the cost was about 50 euros. Well, I, I do love that about Italy, how you can just get such an inexpensive but beautiful yeah. meal. Yeah, that kind of, oh, is this what lasagna can taste like? <laughs> wow. <laughs> what do you think you've changed your mind about over the last few years? Is there anything that you've completely flipped on? Not complete. Not completely. 
Um, what I do know is that I'm prepared to change my views according to the, the experience so that in theory I'm over degustation menus. In practice, I keep coming across <laughs> ones I like. <laughs> yeah, I, I have spent many years in the degustation game and for me, after a while, I just felt just ill. After, yeah, after that's right. It's, uh, and I do not like spending five hours at the table. No. It's, again, it's about what do you want to say. Okay, what do you want to say? You can say it in two to three hours <laughs> or and, 50 minutes. And yeah. two to three courses. Yeah. Five is nice. I like five courses. Yeah, I think that's it. Five five's about right because five gives you something to nibble, a little something to make you hungrier. And then something to tease your appetite, and then something more, and then something to say you've really had, you've just about had enough. And then what you need is a dessert that says, I know you're not hungry, but <laughs> but this will refresh your palate. Yeah, exactly. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people miss that with dessert. What's been... I say influential book, but maybe I would phrase it as if you were to gift someone a book for Christmas, let's say, or that time of the year, you know, the festive season, what would it be? Changes every year, I think. So last year it would have been Ottolenghi's Jerusalem, or the year before. It might be Claudia Roden's book of Middle Eastern food. It might be Marcella Hazan's Principles of Italian Cooking. Um, it might, there are lots of books actually that I really like. Um, MFK Fisher, who's, who's always good fun to read. There are a couple of really interesting books on the history of, oh, I know, B. Nelson, Consider the Fork. There are lots of books I'd give to people. Oh, yeah. I, Otolingu was here recently, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, this year for Good Food and Wine Festival. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, something or other. Yeah. That reminds me. Then, if you were to select one restaurant internationally that you'd had that you could go to, where would it be, or what would it be? Well, I have to put that one on notice. One internationally, I have to put that one on notice. <laughs> okay, if you could have a billboard anywhere in the world, or actually, let me rephrase that: if you could have it anywhere in Melbourne, mm. where would it be, and what would it say? Um, it would be probably on the Eastern Freeway because people have time to look at a billboard when they're on a freeway, Eastern Freeway, and it would say, um, eat more vegetables. Because <laughs> <laughs> you didn't. <laughs> oh, no, well, that too, but because I also think that um, a lot of our problems Health problems would be solved if people ate more vegetables. Okay. Fewer chips. Chips are not a vegetable. What – this is a harder one for some people, but what insight about life seems obvious to you but not to others? Like, What's something that you're always saying and people are always either surprised by it or can't quite understand? I'm not sure. Um Eat more vegetables would be one of them because that really needs to be unpicked a bit. Um, 
It's odd. The I know that the thing I do that surprises lots of my friends, and but my son's the same, is our ability to cook for a dozen people at the drop of a hat. <laughs> um, and I know lots of people who find that weird. My, my oldest son does it, I do it. Um, I just think, oh, it, it's a meal. That's fine. Yeah. Oh, the, I suppose, um, I, I don't, the sense, may, I don't know, I can't answer it. This is a bit like known unknowns. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any last requests that you'd recommend to? Our audience, any parting requests, messages? Be nice to each other. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, Rita, this has been awesome. I'm so glad that Angie introduced us. So, so am I. <laughs> um, if people were to find out about you, of course, when we do our you know, usual blog post about mm. this, we'll have all the links, links to your website. Is that the best place? I noticed you're quite... You, you're active a bit on your Instagram profile. Yeah, I love Instagram. That's the thing I've learned to do, Instagram. <laughs> love it. So your website is readerehrlich.com.au. .au. And Instagram is just Rita Ehrlich? Yep. Yeah. That way I don't have to do anything but remember my own name. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it's a unique name. It's not, it's not something that's likely to be taken on uh, Instagram. That's no, one good thing about having a... That's right. There, there is, I have discovered, because I've got a lot of email address to her and I've had to send it back, um, an eye specialist in Israel who's called... Oh, really? Yes. Wow. Yes. I, um, I got learned papers and I had to send, send them straight back <laughs> saying, look, I'm the wrong, wrong reader. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Well, look, Rita, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a pleasure. It's been my pleasure too. Thank you. Thank you for making it this far. We really do hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure, as I said at the start, leave us a review. We always appreciate feedback and thoughts on each episode. You can head to neural.com slash podcast and join the 90% of our listeners with priority access. So if you want all the show notes and when an episode is released first, that'll be available to you. Don't forget to like us on Facebook or Twitter. It's just at Neural. Until next episode, thanks for listening.